Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the summer of 1980, and things are heating up in America. In Washington, a record-breaking eruption from Mount St. Helens. A brutal heat wave fires up the nation. Many housewives are abandoning the kitchen and hot stove and taking the family to fast food restaurants. But it's not just the weather keeping people indoors. The genre has been given its own nickname. Slice and Dice movies. Friday the 13th premiered that spring. And weeks later, audiences are still freaked out. Fantastic. The first of this new genre of slasher films brings unprecedented gore to the silver screen and soon into people's homes. In Wiley, Texas, life is about to imitate art. Wiley's an old school, plain Jane kind of place. It had houses along the street, they had a church, trees and yards and white picket fences. Everybody knew everybody. Like many suburbs of the era, Wiley is a town in transition. The tech boom came to Texas beginning in the 1980s. A lot of engineers moved there. Texas Instruments was a big employer. It wasn't far from Wiley. This is what brings Alan and Betty Gore there in 1976. Alan was a computer tech, an IT guy, extremely smart, knew his craft very well. He was in IT long before it started getting popular. Computers were, of course, the size of a small car or box truck. If Alan is early nerd, Betty is the opposite. Emotional and thoughtful, she seems most comfortable looking after those she loves. She always had a gorgeous smile and she just kind of put you at ease. Betty was a school teacher, an elementary school teacher, and loved doing it. She was very caring, just liked people. Betty met Alan in their home state of Kansas in the late 1960s. 
Well, they met at K-State. Betty worked in the student union in the food service, and somehow they met through that. The family that I grew up in was a very close family. When we met Alan, Alan was different. Even though he came from a small town, he seemed to be above that and acted that way. A little arrogant, a little standoffish. Nevertheless, Betty's loved ones wish them well when they marry in 1970. And by the time they move to Wiley six years later, they've started their own family. Their daughter, Elisa, is born in the summer of 74. My times with Betty were kind of few because of the distance, but I always saw them smiling. I would describe their family as very loving, very attentive to their first little girl, Elisa. Betty appears to have it all. A perfect little suburban relationship. They had the kids, they had the house, small town in the church. It's just that tightly knit sort of suburban life. Not long after the birth of their second daughter, Bethany, Betty is out of sorts. I don't recall anyone back in 1980 calling it postpartum depression. It probably would be called that today. That may have caused some strain on her marriage to Alan Gore. With a new job, Alan travels often for work. And Betty's a six-hour drive from her beloved family. She and my mom, it was like we're not a lifetime away from each other here. But they would cry for at least 30 minutes before Betty would leave. Like it was the last time they'd ever see each other. But there's one place where she feels at home. Church was a big part of Betty's life. In addition to being in the choir at the Methodist Church, Betty and Alan were on the volleyball team. They were involved in the governing board. It's also where she meets her dear friend, Candy Montgomery. Petite, blonde, with a contagious laugh, Candy is the consummate alpha at church, the first to volunteer for a committee or plan a baby shower. I remember she was gregarious. She was the one that people called to find out what was going on in town. Betty, not so much. I can picture Candy walking into the church for luncheon and quickly becoming the controlling personality. Betty would be over in the corner next to the hors d'oeuvres, not saying anything. Betty, Even with these differences in their personalities, these two women were able to have this friendship. I felt Candy and Betty had a good connection, a good support group for each other. And Betty needs that support. By October of 1979, her relationship with Alan is still suffering. She hears about a possible solution. Over a year ago, President Carter's oldest son, Jack, and his wife, Judy, went away for a marriage encounter weekend. They found it to be one of the most rewarding experiences of their lives. Marriage Encounters is a popular self-help seminar. Many couples publicly express their love and commitment to one another. It's an emotional moment for all. And may God keep us happy together forever. <laughs> Alan agrees to the weekend retreat, and it's a success. They felt like they had made some significant breakthroughs in their marriage. The therapy inspires Betty to plan a European vacation for just the two of them. This trip was like a second reunion. 
a honeymoon, a renewal of their marriage. One week to go until their European getaway. Betty has left oldest daughter Elisa with her friend Candy for the day so she can pack. But instead of excitedly prepping, she's stressed out. Alan Gore was set to go on a business trip that day in the afternoon. Betty didn't really like to be alone at home. There's another reason for her mood. She was late on her period, and so she was really concerned that she was pregnant again, almost to the point of being panicked. At 8.30 a.m., it's time for Alan to go. Even though he was running late, Alan even took time to talk it through with her to try to calm her. He promises he'll call her later. Betty seemed to almost rally at that point, and she brought Bethany out, and the two of them waved goodbye to him with smiles on their faces. Ten hours later, Alan arrives in Minneapolis, and when he gets to the hotel, he calls as promised. There's no answer. Betty was just not the kind of person who went out on her own very often, unless it was to work. He was kind of concerned and confused. Knowing seven-year-old Elisa is with the Montgomery's that day, he rings Candy. Oh, yes, you know, I did see Betty this morning. Candy told Alan that after Bible study, she decided to pick up a swimsuit so that Candy's child and Betty's child could go swimming, and she wanted to talk to Betty about keeping Betty's child overnight so they could go to the movies together. Betty was in the midst of doing laundry. She had the Phil Donahue show on TV. I'll give you a chance here in just a moment. Back. She was just kind of going about morning chores. Candy tells Alan that Betty gave her the bathing suit and agreed to Elisa staying for a sleepover. And that was the last they spoke. Alan goes to dinner with colleagues, and at 10 p.m. he rings Betty again. Still no answer. And now, Alan's concern grows. Alan then called two neighbors and said, I don't know what's going on. Can you go over there and check? He said, go to the house break the windows down, try to find a way to get in the house so you can see what's going on. Nothing looks out of place when they arrive. Both cars are in the garage and a few lights are on. They ring the doorbell, they knock on the door. They don't get any response. The door just opens. The door's unlocked. The front door is unlocked. Anybody home? They are pretty freaked. Hello? They enter the house. Come on. There's a bathroom right there. They look in the bathroom and they see on the tile blood. Now they know something is really wrong. Hearing a noise, the men head towards the bedrooms. Oh my God! It's the baby! It's the baby. Hey, 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's Friday the 13th, 1980. Neighbors have just entered Betty Gore's house to search for her. One of them opens the door, and there's Bethany, 11 months old, all blotchy and red. She was crying and very dirty, as she'd been in the crib quite a while at that point, and very hungry. One of the neighbors took Bethany over to his house so his wife could comfort her. He returns quickly, and they continue to anxiously investigate. Where's Betty? The two cars are there. The front door is unlocked. Where's Betty? They spot the utility room door. One of them approaches the door, and he just sees the floor, which is covered with blood. And then he sees 
Betty Gore's corpse. Her face is completely covered in blood. And he says, oh my God, and she's blown her head off. Just as the men are about to call the police, a piercing ring startles them. Alan Gore calls. Alan? And he says, you got in there, what did you find out? His friend says, well, I'm afraid it's not good. I think she shot herself. Alan is completely shocked by this. In a fog, he calls Betty's parents and breaks the news to them. The horrific information quickly spreads to the rest of the family. I was at a concert, and all of a sudden I looked over and my uncle was at the front gate with a car. And he said, we need to go. Betty's been shot. Did she get shot by somebody breaking into the house? Did she commit suicide? Alan then calls Betty's close friend, who's with his oldest daughter, Elisa. He called Candy back and told Candy that the neighbor had found Betty at the house and that Betty appeared to have been shot. Candy is in disbelief, but jumps into caregiver mode. Oh, Alan. With baby Bethany at a neighbor's house, she agrees to keep Elisa until he can get a flight back. She took care of Elisa, so we're very happy for that. Very thankful. It's midnight when crime scene investigator Steve Defabaugh, armed with his 35-millimeter camera, arrives at 410 Dogwood Drive. Wiley is not used to having crimes like this. The officers, they didn't have any crime scene tape. They had put up some scotch tape with a couple little white pieces of paper that said, do not enter. A two-year veteran of the Collin County Sheriff's Department, he's got some experience under his belt. But neither he nor forensic scientist Irving Stone is prepared for what they see in the utility room. I'd never seen one like that before. I'd been to a lot of crime scenes prior to this where there was a lot of blood. But that was not the case here. And it was absolutely replete with blood. On the freezer, on the walls, on the floor. Investigators quickly realized something surprising. Betty's not the victim of a gunshot. She had wounds all over her, on the back of her head, chop marks on the top of her head, and of course in her face. On her left arm, in the elbow area, you could actually see the bone. One of her eyes were uh, uh, like a bit of her, chopped out. And the weapon the murderer used is still in the room. Underneath the washing machine, there was a bit of an axe, a single-blade axe, with the handle sticking out. Defabaugh immediately begins processing the scene. We saw a lot of bloody footprints. They also found in the utility room a very large, clean imprint in blood of a thumb. On a table in the living room, police note something else. There was a newspaper open up on the counter that was open to an advertisement for the movie The Shining. But it's a finding in the bathroom that leads investigators to a chilling revelation. They found hair in the drain of the shower. They found blood on the tile wall of the shower. And that was always hard to fathom that somebody could actually do the killing 
take a shower and leave the baby in the crib and leave the household. News travels fast in a small town, especially when it's bad news. The gruesome details of Betty's death spread through widely like fire ants at a picnic. And so it was the day after that that we went up and covered the story. Residents in Wiley were freaked out. Wiley's a small town, and a lot of people know everybody around. They've lived around them for years, and we're just scared that it might be somebody we know, you know, someone that we thought was a sweet guy or a sweet lady. The eerie similarities to the massively popular horror films are feeding people's worst fears. Could this be a copycat killer? Now people had the stuff of a slasher movie come to real life on their hands. And this took place on Friday the 13th. The woman who was killed was named Gore. The newspaper was open to an ad for The Shining. Here's Johnny! The police, however, are not so sure this was a random crime. The authorities had privately pretty much decided that this had to be someone who knew her. Who killed Betty Gore? Police say Betty Gore was hacked to death in a frenzy, and the axe used belonged to the Gore family. The morning after the murder, life for those living in a suburban town has changed dramatically. Everybody is just real upset about it, and they and a lot of people are, you know, taking extra, extra precautions. Neighbors near the Gore home, the scene of the crime, are locking doors they never bothered with. The main street is quiet, and women are fearful. The autopsy is performed that morning, and the findings are chilling. We know there are 41 blows to the body. To hit my sister 41 times, it had to be somebody very strong with a lot of upper body strength and very vicious. I think as we humans, we don't want to ever accept that we have people in our midst that would do that. Betty's family tries to make sense of the horrific murder. We thought it was a random killing. We thought somebody broke in, maybe a robbery. But investigator Steve Defabaugh notes a finding from the house that makes robbery seem unlikely. I've noticed the only dresser, some 35 millimeter film, several new boxes with a $20 bill sticking up from it. So that kind of piqued my curiosity because no good thief is gonna leave a $20 bill laying around. And though they're still chasing every lead, Police feel confident this wasn't a random killing. Whenever you have the wounds to the face where they've chopped out the eyes, the thought process is usually because they're jealous. If you can't have eyes for me, you can't have eyes for anyone. Is that what's happened? Is it her husband? Alan Gore flies back to Texas and comes home to utter devastation. His beloved wife brutally murdered his children now motherless. He immediately sits down with the police. They questioned him, I think, for an hour and a half, and they went through every detail of his day. Alan left Betty around 8.30, arriving at work around 9. He was with co-workers the entire day, including his lunch at Long John Silver's, his ride to the airport, and flight out of town. His alibi is airtight but something doesn't sit well with the police. 
He was somewhat cold and detached in the way he answered questions and wasn't very emotional about what had happened to his wife. And when Alan returns to his home, scoured clean by neighbors and friends, he's joined by Betty's family, who also find his demeanor unnerving. He was grieving very, very little. We didn't see a person that was as concerned as I think a normal person would have been. He was very calm, kind of cool, and just kind of went about his own little business. Having learned from Alan that Candy Montgomery visited Betty on the 13th, police add her to their list of people to talk to. The police were trying to put together a timeline of when Betty was killed and who was the last person to see Betty alive. It appears likely that person is Candy. Police call her in and she heads to the station after Sunday Mass. They wanted to see when she saw Betty, when she talked to Betty. Just typical police investigative work. They need Candy to corroborate elements of Alan's timeline. Nowadays we've got cell phones which would be able to track down the times and things. I kept saying, okay, what time? You know what time it was that Alan Gore called? What were you watching on TV? Candy's cagey on giving an answer. She finally told me, she looked at me, she says, you must know what I was doing. I was screwing. I went, wow, <laughs> okay. Not quite the answer Defabaugh was expecting from a woman dressed in her Sunday best, and he's baffled by it. Was she simply embarrassed to tell him she was having sex with her husband? Or is something else going on? Either way, her timeline of events matches Alan's. And unfortunately, Candy didn't notice anyone or anything suspicious that day. Police are back to square one. We had had the funeral in Wiley. It was a tough day. It was a tough day for all of us. I remember going in and hearing all of the good words and feeling like she had such a close Christian church family. Of course, the parents of the children that Betty taught were there. The church was pretty full. But it isn't just loved ones who show up. While friends, relatives, and former students of the fifth grade teacher packed the small Methodist church in Wiley this afternoon, a Texas Ranger was quietly taking their pictures from across the street. And there's good reason for their presence in Wiley. Justice of the Peace Buddy Newton says he believes the killing was a personal vendetta and even speculated the killer attended the memorial service this afternoon. With no evidence of stolen property or signs of a break-in, Investigators now firmly believe it was someone Betty knew. And that someone could very well be in the crowd at that church. When the funeral ends, friends pile in and provide support to the grieving family. But casseroles can only do so much to ease the pain and the lingering fear that the killer may strike again. It was very important to find the person responsible for Betty's death. We wanted to know why. We started looking for clues or for anything, anything that was missed. And then, a chilling phone call. We're in the house and the phone rings. My brother Richard answers. Hello, Gore residence. I killed Betty Gore. Richard hung up right away. As Richard being as sensitive as he is, he just cannot handle certain things. The threatening phone call, a classic horror film trope. 
Hello. Have you checked the children? children, children. Another indication this could be a copycat killer. The family quickly contacts the police in case he calls back. The Texas Rangers came to the house and asked me if I was able to answer the phone. If the killer does actually call again, Ron will have to keep him on the line for at least 10 minutes in order to trace the call. Not long after the first call, the phone rings again. I pick it up, and the first thing I hear was, I killed her. So I said, well, how did you kill her? The person on the line kept trying to tell me that he'd killed her in a marsh area out by the lake. Ron keeps the caller engaged, and police are able to trace the call. Within minutes, a police car is dispatched to an address. I don't even remember exactly if it was horror or relief that we might have an answer. They thoroughly question the man and discover a fact that changes everything. It was actually a recently released mental hospital person. To find out it was all at roost, it was just heartbreaking. With no new leads, police bring Alan Gore in for another interrogation. And with his evasive attitude, there's still the possibility he's hiding something. He submits to hours of questioning. His timeline and description of events don't change. But Wiley PD haven't gone through all the tools at their disposal. They want to polygraph Alan Gore to see if he is hiding anything. Alan agrees to the polygraph. But before he takes it, he admits to police that he hasn't been completely forthcoming. Alan actually told them that he was having an affair with Candace Montgomery. The torrid liaison with his wife's friend, one that Alan confesses started two years ago at, of all places, church. Alan explains that Candy pursued him. She flirted with him. She almost became a pest. Alan tells them that over the next two months, he resists her advances, but Candy doesn't take no for an answer. At every church gathering, she always found a way to isolate him. She said to him, I don't know really what to do about this, but I'm really attracted to you. Finally, Alan said, okay. Candace and Alan would meet up at a little motel, the Como Motel. It was close to Alan's workplace. They would meet up at lunchtime. They would have sex. They would chat about this and that, frustration with life, the state of their marriages. They would eat this extravagant lunch she had prepared. He went along with it. It was easy. It was convenient. Then, nearly a year after it began, Alan abruptly ends the relationship. Largely as a result of his participation in Marriage Encounter, and this renewed relationship with his wife. Alan passes the polygraph, and now police believe they have a motive for a different suspect, Candy Montgomery. We have jealousy, we have lust and rage and revenge. We have domestic motives now in play. And the next morning, police begin angling their investigation towards Candy. 
Investigators are hoping reports from the forensic lab will give them more clues to the size and weight of the killer. One finding from the crime scene is noteworthy. Underneath one of Betty Gore's legs, there was a footprint, bloody footprint. A footprint can help investigators estimate a person's size, and this one is telling. We measured him as a small foot or a woman. More than likely, they committed this offense. But for an arrest, they need concrete evidence. So they look to their best evidence, the bloody thumbprint. They summon Candy to the station for fingerprinting and a polygraph. And Candy told the police she would do that, but before she actually went and took a polygraph test, then she came to my firm to seek legal advice. She meets with Robert Udishin, a young but brilliant associate. She told me she didn't have anything to hide and she wanted to help the police catch whoever did this, but she still wanted legal advice once they started asking about a polygraph. Is that something that she should do or she shouldn't do? I told her, let's just pause. Candy's lawyer calls a precinct and tells him she won't be taking a polygraph. However, that same day, around midnight, the chief fingerprint expert for Dallas County makes a positive ID of the thumbprint found on Betty Gore's freezer. The thumbprint was good enough to match to Candy. A bloody thumbprint. That's hard to explain, unless you were there at the time. This afternoon, Candy Montgomery was arrested in connection with a brutal axe slaying of Betty Gore. When Candy was arrested, residents of the town were in shock. From what I do know of Candy and from what I have seen of Candy, uh, I just can't picture Candy doing this sort of thing. She was someone who did not have a dark side. And three months later, when the trial finally commences, for the little town of Wiley, Texas, it's the biggest event in years. The first shocking twist comes as soon as Candy's defense attorney gets up to deliver his opening statement. He stands up and with great grandiosity says, we have quite a story to tell. Candy Montgomery did kill Betty Gore, but she did so in self-defense. And you could hear a lot of gasps in the courtroom. We were all in disbelief that she claimed self-defense. Stunned. Over the next few days, the prosecution calls to the stand a parade of Candy's church friends, investigators, and police officers. The first witness was Alan Gore, widower of the victim, Betty Gore. The somber-looking Gore fielded questions with the murder weapon on the edge of the stand next to him. Alan admits to the affair. But he says the breakup was mutual, and Candy never expressed any anger or jealousy that would lead him to think her capable of this crime. But there is abundant evidence pointing to Candy as the killer. The state's strongest evidence to connect her were bloody fingerprints and palm prints. It's not until the fourth day of court, Thursday, October 23rd, that Candy takes the stand and finally tells the people of Wiley what they've been packing into here for days her version of what went down that fateful morning. When Candy went over to Betty's to pick up the swimsuit for Elisa, they engaged in a lot of mom sort of small talk. At some point, 
Betty's demeanor changed, and she turned really dark. According to Candy, Betty Gore knew about her affair with Alan and wanted revenge. She says that Betty got the axe and stated, you can't have him. Candy said, it's okay, Betty. I, I didn't really want him, which of course just added insult to injury. She says, Betty kept saying, you can't have him and came at her with the ax. And from there, the fight was on. The two lock their hands on the ax. They're both struggling with it. And Candy got hit by the ax, a small blow to her head. Candy says when she started screaming, Betty did something odd. She shushed her. Betty went shh to be quiet because she was screaming. And that's when Candy admits she snapped. She walked out to the guest bathroom and took a shower and walked out to her car and drove home. The courtroom is stunned. Self-defense doesn't quite work if you have 40 blows. Candy left the baby in the crib and went back to vacation Bible school. If it was self-defense, you would think you would immediately call the authorities. Why didn't she call 911? But her defense team is more than ready for these questions. They use a surprising method to figure out why Candy did what she did. Hypnotism is an emerging field that's rapidly gaining popularity with therapists. In a hypnotic trance, information that has been forgotten or repressed can be recalled. Shortly after Candy's first visit, Yudishin brought her to a psychiatrist and hypnotist who pulled the real story out of her. It was like watching a movie of what had taken place that day in Betty Gore's house. And what he learned shaped a defense. With the psychiatrist on the stand, the stunned courtroom learns that Candy did this because she suffered from what many had never heard of before, a dissociative reaction, similar to a split personality, but for an isolated incident. One of the things that came out in the course of the hypnosis is that Candy got hit by the ax and she screamed and Betty Gore said, shh. Dr. Faison said that that triggered a dissociative reaction in Candy based on, on an incident from Candy's childhood. Through hypnosis, she remembered an incident from when she was quite young where she had been injured. And her mother had told her, shh, don't express your pain. Don't show that you're hurt. According to the defense, 25 years of repressed anger at her mother unleashed with a single sound. Doctors testified that Mrs. Montgomery was in a dreamlike state at the time of the attack. This was an element of this trial and this murder that was hard for people to wrap their head around. Whoa, this is not our world. It's a little bit woo-woo. It's an out there defense, and the family doesn't buy it. Seeing Candy in the courtroom, all I could do was stare at her because I wanted her to feel every stare. I wanted her to know that I didn't believe a word she was saying. The trial lasts nine days. On Wednesday, October 29th, spectators anxiously gather for the verdict. 
We thought there's no way she's going to get off in self-defense. We knew we had a conviction. They found her not guilty by reason of self-defense. My husband and I looked at each other. How could this happen? I remember hearing people yelling in the courtroom upset at the verdict. For the family, justice was not served. Candy got away with murder. Not a question in my mind. As for Alan, he quickly moves on with his life. He got married three months after the trial. Certainly made us more suspicious of him. I know my dad, till his death, still believes Alan had a part of this. Driven out of town by the backlash against her, Candy moves to Georgia, changes her name, and finds a new profession. This is something I can't wrap my head around, but I understand that Candy went and got her counselor uh, license. She's a counselor. I always thought about getting an appointment and then telling her I have problems dealing with things because somebody killed my sister with an ax. One of the main tenets of 80 slasher films was to leave room for a sequel. And in order to do that, the killer had to go free. This horror movie come to life got that same treatment, leaving Betty Gore's loved ones longing for closure. It certainly left a open wound because we still don't know the truth. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.